All right, today we're going to talk about some of the original articles and um, top highlights on Validia's Grew Investor blog for the week of June 11th, 2021. Um, so to start, Jack, I just I wanted before you get into your article, I just want to um, ask you if you still want to borrow this shirt later. Why? Why is that? Oh, I don't know. I thought you might like it. It's blue. It's got some colors. It's got some design. You know, I'm trying to get you out of just your standard. <laughs> your, your yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to continue with the boring operation that I've got going. Um, it, fits, it fits well with my personality, so I'm going to keep going with it. All right, nice, nice. We'll, we'll get you. I, I will let you borrow it if you want it. But uh, maybe to start, what's your, um, what was your article about this week? Uh, my article is called The Balance Between Edge and Conviction. So what I want to look at is, is, you know, one, how difficult edges are to get in the market. So, you know, everybody thinks they have some sort of edge, you know, some, some sort of reason they can outperform the market. You know, whether it be professionals like us that have developed the system or whether it be individual investors, you know, and a lot of people are day trading these days and they, they think they have some edge over the market, you know, ourselves included. And you know, one of the things that it's hard for all of us to realize is how incredibly difficult it is to get an edge. You know, if you think about the collective wisdom that's out there, you know, if you think about the smartest investors you know and you think that you're competing against them, you realize how difficult it is to get an edge in investing. And so the, the first part of the article, I looked at sort of the different edges that exist and why they're hard to get. So I looked at, at you know, three main edges, an informational edge, which is basically that I have more information than the market does, um, an analytical edge, which is that I have the same information, but I can analyze it in a better way than the market can. And then a behavioral edge, which I think is ultimately the one that most of us can capitalize on, which is I'm, I'm able to exhibit more patience than the next person. And I'm, I'm willing to wait it out until my edge shows itself. Um, you know, and, and I use the example of, of Dennis Lynch, um, who runs Counterpoint Global, who a lot of people haven't heard of, but has one of the, he was on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast recently. He has one of the best long-term track records of, you know, almost any investor. And, and Patrick asked him about his edge. And basically what he said was, was time arbitrage, which gets back to this behavioral thing. So although they have, um, they have amazing analysts, they clearly have an analytical edge in what they're doing, that they are analyzing companies. You know, if you look at what they've bought, they're analyzing companies better than other people. What he thought his true edge was, was his ability to stick with it and his ability not to focus on the most recent quarter and to look out to the long term. And so I think that was that was maybe the conclusion of the article is that, you know, your conviction in your strategy and your ability to see through on your edge is, is probably the key. And, you know, it, for many people who think they might have an informational edge or an analytical edge, they, they may not when they actually think they do. Yeah, in terms of what Dennis Lynch said, it kind of reminds me of what Robert Hagstrom was saying sort of about Buffett. You know, he's willing to take a really long-term view, make big bets when he thinks the odds are on his side. Um, and, you know, those are sort of some of the contributing factors to his, you know, performance. But um, what I would also say is that I think investors can sometimes get f fool themselves that, that they have an edge. It, it's like hard, like if you're, if you're an individual investor and you're generating like good performance, um, over the past year or so, you can kind of get overconfident and think that you have more of an edge than you do, where it's just really more of a random, you know, more of a random act of how those stocks have done. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you're going to be able to outperform the market over time. So, so finding an edge and maintaining it, I think, and actually knowing when you have it and where that edge can come from, I think it's, it's tough for a lot of investors to understand that. Yeah, a couple of things with that. One is that we were certainly the victim of that at the beginning of our careers. You know, we started managing money and, you know, we started running models in 2003. And 2003 was one of those years where basically if you threw a dartboard at the market, you know, because small stocks were outperforming and value stocks were outperforming, if you threw a dart at board, you know, a dart at the market, you would have pretty much picked anything that would have outperformed. And so we thought we were a lot better than we actually were. And, you know, you're seeing the same thing right now with what's going on, you know, since the bottom of the coronavirus crisis. If, if you just bought a random basket of, you know, cheap price to book stocks, 
you have an incredible performance off the bottom. Um, and so you may think your strategy is better than it actually is, and that strategy may not stand the test of time. So like you said, it's sometimes when you have really good performance in a short period, you think you have an edge when you don't really have an edge. Um, and the other thing that's, that's important is, you know, I was talking about the balance between edge and conviction. You know, your point is really valid that you have to actually have an edge for the conviction to matter. Um, you know, if you have this strategy and it's underperforming and it doesn't work, well, the more you, you know, you can keep sticking with the strategy all you want while it underperforms, it's never going to come back. And so that's what's so hard about this is you have to have confidence that you actually have an edge for that conviction to matter. So it's, it's, a, it's a very challenging trade-off. Um, what was our podcast this week? Yeah, so, um, well, let me just back up to last week. So we did Robert Hagstrom, um, who wrote The Warren Buffett Way, and he has a new book, um, The Ultimate Money Mind. And he basically is like a student of of Warren Buffett. He's written a lot of books on Buffett. He studied Buffett. Um, and so it's it's kind of about peeling back, you know, the onion on the methodology, the philosophy, you know, uh, Warren Buffett's success um, in investing. So, and I, I really enjoyed that conversation with Hagstrom. It was a good one. It's doing well. So anybody that's interested in sort of learning more about Warren Buffett, I encourage you to um, watch or listen to that one. And the podcast this week was another one of our um, episodes where we highlighted one of the models on Validia. And this week we highlighted the Joseph Piotrowski, um, we call it the book to market investor uh, model, which is based on a research paper. The title of that paper is value investing, the use of historical financial statement information to separate winners from losers. And we talked about what went into that um, systematic strategy. It's basically a strategy that starts by identifying the cheapest stocks in the market. And then it tries to um, within that universe, identify those that are seeing improvements in their financials um, and fundamentals to try to separate those value stocks that deserve to be cheap versus those that are seeing improvements in the business and should be maybe re-rated higher in terms of their valuation. Um, so if anyone's interested in the Piotrowski value model, they can listen to that podcast or you know, check it out on Validia because we do run it there. Yeah, going back to the Hagstrom thing, I thought one of the most interesting parts of the podcast was when he sort of broke down why Amazon was a value. You know, he, he was working with Bill Miller at the time, and he sort of talked about how they understood the business of Amazon better than your average investor and how, how that made Amazon actually a value a long time ago. And, you know, where, whereas many people just saw it as like an expensive growth stock, like a lot of other expensive growth stocks, how they saw the value in that company. So I think that's that part of it. And we did a podcast highlight of that. So we have a separate, you know, three-minute segment that we put up on our YouTube channel, Excess Returns, to show that. But that's probably the most valuable part of it is, is understanding that because so many of us that are value investors missed Amazon. And he, he gives some really, a really good explanation as to why Amazon ended up being so successful and how they saw that back then. Yeah, I love that story. And by the way, now Bill Miller, according to some estimates, is the largest shareholder in Amazon outside of Jeff Bezos and his ex-wife. So Miller's been in there for a long time and he's made a boatload of money on that stock. What was our, um, what was your favorite article this week on the blog? It was called uh, Robin Hood and What Some Say Buffett is Missing. So you have this whole back and forth now between like the Buffett people, which is like us, the fundamental type investors and, and the new Robin Hood traders. Um, and, you know, this article was making a couple different points. You know, one was basically that 
the Robin Hood trader is probably not what all of us think it is. So it's not just the person, you know, YOLOing call options on AMC or whatever. You know, many of the Robin Hood traders are actually deploying ETF-based, you know, broad, broad market ETFs into their strategy. You know, they may have a separate basket where they're trading some of these individual names, but they're, they're not all what we think they are. But the, the other part of it is, you know, this, I'll read a quote from the article because I, th I think it's interesting, is they were, they were saying fundamental-based narratives such as those that prevail, Buffett and Munger's worldview, might increasingly be irrelevant. ETF investors using apps like Robinhood might just be heralds of a new investment normal. And, and you see this all the time. I don't necessarily agree with this, but this idea that because this is becoming a flows-based market, because we have all these Robinhood traders in there, that, you know, fundamentals may not matter as much in the future as they have in the past. And so, you know, I don't have, I mean, obviously I don't believe that, but I think that is, that's a narrative that all of us have to consider is, you know, has something changed here in, in the world where the, Maybe in the ultra long term, fundamentals will still matter, but we're going to be in a period here for a while because of the, the rise of these Robinhood traders where maybe all of us that are fundamental investors are getting this a little bit wrong. And, and maybe we're going to be in a flows driven market for a long time. And, you know, where I think that's important is, you know, and what we try to do in our process is we always try to incorporate multiple factors. And, you know, the one factor that's going to do well, if that ends up being true, is momentum. And they sort of talked about that in the article. And, and that's why it's important to have all of, you know, exposure to different factors in different, you know, over different periods of time. Because if, if that's true for a long period of time here, and if value doesn't work or if quality doesn't work, having that momentum piece is going to be really important in terms of producing an overall portfolio return. So, I mean, I'm not a believer that fundamentals are dead, but I do think all of us have to keep in mind, you know, what are these, what do these Robinhood traders mean for the market? What does social media mean for the market? All these things that are changing, what does it mean for the market going forward? Because I think it's probably going to have a significant impact. Yeah, I just saw something today. It was a headline that crossed that like, was looking at the performance of the most heavily shorted stocks so far this year. And I mean, they're the ones that are doing, you know, quite well. And to your point about it was like, what's, you know, and a lot of that is driven by this, you know, Wall Street bets sort of Reddit crowd and, and people piling into these, you know, trying to get these short squeezes and trying to profit from it. So it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, only time will tell. I think what changes that maybe a lot is a bear market. You know, if you get a bear market and things get washed out and not everyone is always making money, I think some of that, you know, behavior changes. Um, but, you know, who knows when a bear market will come? We just don't know. Yeah. And also, if we end up with a situation where rates are higher, where, you know, capital is not as cheap, um, you might have a situation where companies, the cash flows companies are producing is actually what's required to run their businesses. And, and then you may see the companies with better fundamentals, companies producing better cash flow. You may see them doing better. And you may see some, just like you saw in 2000, you may see some of these growth names that, you know, can't really support their businesses. You could, may see them fall by the wayside, but, but who knows? Um, what is your article? So it was a Bloomberg article, bonds have never been so useless as a hedge to stocks since 1999. And basically what it was highlighting was the correlation between the S&P 500 and 10-year treasury has basically turned positive. Um, and you, you know, most of the time you don't want that because you want bonds, if the market's declining, you know, you hope that your fixed income or your long-term bond exposure will act as a buffer um, to the portfolio. But What's actually happened here is it's at least over the last you know couple months is the relationship has turned positive. Now there has been other times where this has happened, but you know normally there's a negative correlation between the two asset classes. And one of the analysts in the article kind of was citing the fact that um, inflation is acting like as a, as a volatility catalyst, as he put it. So you know if you get a period of high inflation and rates are expected to go up, that would mean bond prices would go down. And you might also have that 
scenario happen with stocks, which is you know a situation where stocks and bonds go down together. Um, so it's just something that investors, I think, need to think about and be aware of. You know, bonds may not act as the diversifier in this market environment that they have in the past. And you know, we're doing actually a webinar tomorrow um, around alternatives to the 60/40 stock bond portfolio and just some of the things that you know we think investors should be thinking about, given the fact where the market valuation is and given where rates are. Um, but you know, so this is, I think, so, this is something that is becoming more aware in the market that, you know, things like the 60-40 or the diversification that bonds offer, you know, may not be as safe as they have in the past. This gets at the whole issue of the, the danger of looking at averages and not looking at what's inside those averages. So in general, you know, stocks and bonds are negatively correlated, but there's been significant periods and long periods in history where they weren't. The 70s is an example. Um, so it's, it's just, and, and what, what's common in those periods is inflation. And so the question really becomes, are we going to get significant inflation? And if we do, you may see a situation where bonds are not the protection they have been in the past. And so it's just important to dig underneath the data when you say stocks and bonds are negatively correlated to understand that that doesn't mean that they are all the time. And, and to understand, like, in some cases, you know, if, if you have a situation like that, you can have it where that, that relationship has been consistent through time. But stocks and bonds are not one of those things. Stocks and bonds have periods where they, they are negatively correlated. They have periods where they're positively correlated. And so it's just important to keep that in mind when you're building a portfolio. Yeah, that's good point. So we'll put links to all these articles in the show notes. And thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.